It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is going to be a very interesting show. You know, uh, Kobe Bryant passed away recently, and it was a shock. A, a lot of people uh, definitely expressed their grief. And then there were some people who were saying, hey, we can't forget about the other people that were on the plane. And, 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 we, and, and you know, and, and a lot of us don't even know Kobe Bryant, so why do, you know, why do we even care? So today on the show, I, uh, I'm being joined by Dr. Patty Ashley, and I brought her uh, specifically to talk about this. So Dr. Patty Ashley, international uh, workshop presenter, author, speaker, psychotherapist, and authenticity architect, I love that, brings unique insight into the identification and treatment of trauma, shame, grief, and dysfunction, family patterns. Dr. Patty Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Bert. Thanks for having me. You bet. And this is kind of a, a, a unique human experience, right? That a celebrity, I, I was talking to you before the show about how I felt when John Lennon passed away. I never met the guy, but I definitely felt some loss there. And then, you know, so, so what is it about us humans that we care about somebody like a Kobe Bryant or a John Lennon or a John Denver? Uh, he passed away uh, a few years ago and, and, Again, I just felt as though there was a little bit of a loss there. Why am I experiencing loss for some of these people that I don't know? Yeah, well, John Denver, now that was mine. John Denver and Dan Fogelberg. I moved to Colorado because yeah. of his, their music. And yeah, I was touched very deeply by that. It's archetypal. And, and what that means is, you know, we look at archetypes. We look at, at celebrities. We look at, you know, public figures as images of, of, of us really we you know we see ourselves kind of like it's like a mirror so I'm seeing um people especially sports fans you know people who really liked Kobe Bryant are gonna grieve more but we're all kind of in shock and 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 following the story and kind of feeling into it a little bit in our own experience because we're um it, that's empathy. That's how we have empathy and and like you said you know what about the other people in the helicopter you know, for me, it was how old is, um, you know, the rest of his children. And because I, my, my story is I lost my father when I was 11. So my work is really about grief and about, you know, children don't think the same way as adults. And so, and how a, a widow would grieve versus how a child would grieve and how a widow would help her child grieve. You know, that's kind of, because that's what I saw in the story because that's my projection so we all project our own experiences onto celebrities. Why do we watch celebrities in general? You know, right. <laughs> entertainment tonight, who cares about Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston? Why, why do we do that? You know, why are we curious? We right, right. So then when there's a grief, there's a tragedy, it just opens up that piece of the human condition that is so fragile and so hard for all of us to talk about, which is why, you know, I do the work I do. I always said I wanted to, you know, after I lost my dad and went through kind of a depressive um, high school, middle high school years, I thought this is odd. I want to, I want to grow up and give people a place to talk about these things. Cause yeah. it's weird that we don't talk about them enough. Right. And I agree with that. And, and uh, we have Kathy who's watching us live and she's talking about, you know, she's gotten more emotional. She cries over a lot of stuff since mm -hmm. I had cancer. And I think that's 
that's probably more understandable because you you know you uh, you're you're a little bit, you are a little bit more sensitive. I mean, you're you know I, th- I think when you're dealing with a a disease that could terminate your life, uh, I think you are more empathetic, and I think that you are more sensitive to how fragile life mm-hmm. is, right? Oh, exactly. And death is our greatest teacher. That's the thing. But we have such a fear of our immortality. We're we're all afraid to die, but you know what? Taxes and death. I mean, we all got to do it. So it's all going to happen. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. And I think there's so many layers of fear for people, people who may have had religious beliefs, you know, and they think, oh, they've done something wrong. They're going to go to hell and burn forever. You know, my grandmother used to say when I burnt my hand on the stove, she goes, that's what it's going to feel like if you have to go to hell. If if you're bad, you go to hell. You know, I outgrew that Catholic shame, thank goodness. But, you know, those are some of the fears. Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be painful? Am I going to have to fit, you know? Or maybe I just die. It, no, we don't know. That's, right. You know, my whole life after losing my dad, when everybody said he was in heaven, was, you know, be happy he's in heaven. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Why can't I go there? You know, he's my dad. <laughs> and so I was on this spiritual quest all my life and, and to, to end up at this place of, I don't know. None of right. us know. It's a mystery. And we're not supposed to know because we're supposed to be here now. And I think it that's a challenge in itself because being here now it involves so many fears and um, fear of death is a big one. So Kathy, I, I hear that cancer, you know, the whole experience. I had a dear friend of mine who just passed away last year of cancer and she struggled for gosh, in and out of treatment for almost 10 years. And um, she was afraid, you know, people I find are afraid to live and afraid to die. Yeah, because life gets hard and we feel helpless and hopeless. And we don't even I'm wondering now with all the school shootings and stuff, what's, you know, these kiddos, I'm thinking about doing like a focus group with some teens and and wondering what's the point of life right now? Sometimes it's really hard. So how do we find the hope and the joy of life? And then how do we also accept our mortality and know that it won't last forever? But it, it for me, it tends to kind of wake me up and shock me a little bit to think that the people I care about are gone and now I'm still here. And how do I be here now? Um, And how do I also accept the fact that I'm going to die eventually? And when I have a cancer diagnosis, you know, that's so, that's so difficult because there's so many aspects of, you know, having to take care of ourselves and getting what we need and, and all the treatments and, it's not I think also interestingly enough, part of that is allowing other people to help you mm-hmm. right? because again, uh, you know, as humans, we don't mind helping people, but man, sometimes we don't like being helped. Oh, Bert, that's such a good point. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. And when we're physically ill or, um, you know, we break our leg or something and, and we have to ask for help. Some of us who, you know, are, we like to do it all on our own and not ask for help. It's, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, back to this thing about, uh, you know, first of all, death and taxes, death is the only thing that you actually will do because some people don't pay their taxes They you know, they may go to jail for it or they get, maybe they get away with it, but, 
<laughs> but bottom line is you're, you're, you're not going to get away from uh, death. That, that's going to happen sooner or later. Uh, but I think that you have to have faith, right? It is a, you mentioned religious uh, background. So I think that if you have that uh, spiritual background, whatever you want to call it, religious background, uh, you have a faith-based belief that things are going to work out and, and we're going to receive uh, something better at the other end, then it makes, it gives you that little bit of hope you know, there's that little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, sort of, sort of speak. As, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to, if you don't believe in those things, then really, there's no hope. I mean, <laughs> well, and a lot of the near death uh, stories that we've heard, I think, are helpful because none of them are, talk about it being traumatic or scary. It's actually very. Um, it's the meeting the light. You know, um, meeting people we love and feeling a sense of oneness. And again, we don't really know um, because we're, we're not, I don't think our brains are wired to know what really happens after we die. But I do think those stories of people who say they've had near death experiences bring uh, to me a sense of, of comfort that, you know, I don't, I don't think that we're really meant to, you know, burn in hell and be judged for all the wrongdoings. I do think that yeah, we. Um... Yeah, and I agree with you. I think that th there are some religious leaders that uh, uh, you know that are, that have messed it up uh, for a lot of people because they bring a lot of fear and judgment and shame. <laughs> and I think that again, uh, not to make this a a religious discussion, but I think if you really study, let's say uh, I'll use Jesus Christ, who, who I uh, I believe in. You know, if you if you if you study him, uh, he's a very meek individual who never shamed anybody, never uh, used uh, you know fear to get people to do stuff. At you very meek, very patient individual. Uh, the same thing with let's say a Gandhi or, or even a Buddha. The, these people were meek and uh, they suffered a lot and uh, and and used a lot of their uh, what do you call it uh, their personal power to uh, create change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, power, a different kind of power than a yeah. physical power. There, David Hawkins wrote a book called Power Versus Force. Yes. And, um, you know, I think Jesus and, and Buddha and the enlightened masters, their sense of power was from within and the mystics were from within. You know, it's funny, Ray, we are getting into religion. I always say I want to stay away from religion and politics in any of my interviews because <laughs> it gets so... You know, people get so about it. They're like, but I believe this and I believe that. And, and I'm trying to say, you know what? It, it's really about, to me, I think Jesus, I'm not saying I'm a Christian, but I think the teachings of G per se, as we, again, here, here we are in this right, 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 about right. it. You know, I think he taught love your neighbor as yourself. Um, do unto others as you would have do unto you. The kingdom of God is of the children. And I love children. We can learn so much from kids. They're so innocent. And they're full of wonder and mystery and curiosity. So, you know, for me, it's really about how do I hold that in my life and without getting so attached to the dogma or all the other beliefs, because that's all they're all fear based. Yes. You know, uh -huh. so that kind of power is more of a power of knowing that the love that connects me to all that is, is in me. That's was the power of the enlightened masters. I think not, I'm going to kill you so I can get 
control of the country and and dominate the world, you know, that's right. that's a different kind of power. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and again, we've seen some horrible things. Uh, humans have done some horrible things to humans uh, in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the yeah. name of whatever. So uh, definitely some 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 stuff there. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, oh, here we go. Uh, thank, uh, Devin uh, saying, hey, uh, amen. Great discussion. Thank you both. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Devin. Uh, so let's talk about this. I do want to jump into this. And talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the many layers of this type of loss or of grief. Uh, you know, there are people talk about, uh, you know, I think there's like, I don't know, there's a process. And, and, and so maybe give us an insight to the loss, uh, to the different layers that are involved. Well, if you're grieving someone that you knew personally, you go through Kubler-Rossa stages are the, are the best, which is um, denial and bargaining um, anger, depression, um, and then acceptance. So, um, but it's not linear. So we go in and out of those places, you know, the denial and bargaining usually is that couldn't have happened. How could that happen? And, you know, if, so if we look archetypally at a celebrity and something like Kobe Bryant, like how, you know, we want to know how, what happened. I don't even know if they figured it all out yet, but we want to know what happened to that helicopter. How could that happen? You know, oftentimes we want to blame somebody or sometimes we might blame ourselves. You know, that's the denial and bargaining. Like that couldn't have happened. How could that happen? I want to make sense of it all. You know, right. sometimes my clients will ask, you know, have somebody who's died and maybe suicided. And they say, I don't know why I can't get the thought out of my head of, of what that was like for them to, you know, put the belt around their neck. And isn't that morbid that I'm having these thoughts? And I'm like, no, that, that's you trying to uh, under, to have the story so we can get out of the bargaining and denial. We can see the story. We can go into the anger of it and, and, um, and the sadness. And then we move into a sense of acceptance. But again, all those, they're not linear stages like most of the things in our emotional self is not linear. It's really kind of, it, it, we move in and out of it. Um, and yeah. the time frame, it's different. People want to say, how long does it take? You know, and Kubler Ross said, you know, the average is two years from her experience of working with people. You know, I've had people tell me that three years is, is it. And my uh, fiance died of a sudden heart attack the same way my father had died when I was a kiddo. And that's been a little over three years ago. And I wrote a memoir about that letters to wow. freedom because his last name was freedom. And I just did a book reading on Valentine's day. And I was just on channel nine news talking about it on, you know, Valentine's day. And, um, I like all of a sudden I had this wave of grief again last week and I thought, Oh no, <laughs> but I, I think it's like being able to realize that these waves of experiences are, are praising the people we loved, you know, and right. so honoring the people who passed on Martine Prechtel, who's an author wrote about that grief and praise, you know, whenever we're in grief, we're actually honoring those people. So when we talk about a celebrity, you know, which is kind of somewhat removed, we're still having a, that a similar sense of empathy for their story. And we're actually imagining the story as if it were our own. Right. Um, I think all of what we do is really a mirror projection as, you know, Carl Jung would call it. Well, and I like what you said there uh, as when you, when you look at grieving as a form of praise, 
that to me uh, makes a lot of sense because, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're doing when, when one of our favorite celebrities, for lack of better terms, one of our favorite celebrities die and you're kind of, you know, you, you feel uh, you feel sad or, or and you feel bad for their family. And, and it is a, a kind of praise. Uh, you know, when John Denver died, I thought, man, you know what? He to me, uh, he just made the world a better place. And again, his music was always uplifting. And, and uh, the guy was, uh, you know, was, uh, uh, you know, was just a cool guy. It was all right, man. He's, he was just a, just a, one of my favorite individuals. Uh, and I think also it has to do uh, with, you know, uh, I mentioned my father passed away uh, just a year ago and, you know, he was 95 and bless his heart. He, you know, he was born on Friday, April the 13th and he died on Friday, April the 13th. Oh my goodness. That's, cool? That's kind of cool. <laughs> and, and he was what? 90, 95, 95. And so, that, okay. Wow. So, so, you know, as opposed to, let's say, your fiance who passed away suddenly or when your child, you know, or, or somebody who passes away suddenly. We, uh, I was talking to you about uh, Steve Reeves and and, uh, you know, he went into the hospital for uh, something routine and he passed away from a blood clot. Uh, and, 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 and those, you know, when somebody passes away unexpectedly, again, a Kobe Bryant or a loved one that you personally know or something like that, that really uh, shocks the system. And, and, and that's when I think a lot of people really become, let's say, angry or distraught, as opposed to your, you know, somebody who's lived a full life. My dad lived a full life. He was 95 years old. He had written m multiple books. He had started multiple businesses. Uh, he had, uh, you know, he had seen his kids uh, get married and he had grandchildren. He had a very full life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we should all be lucky to live, uh, a, you know, a long and a healthy life. I mean, uh, and, and, and it's just one of those things where his body just finally wore out. And, uh, you know, uh, just to, you know, he was, he, he had a lot of mental energy. Um, and, and when we went to the hospital and, and the doctor told him, Hey, Mr. Martinez, uh, you know, uh, this will be the last time, uh, you know, you won't be leaving the hospital. This is, I think this is it for you. You know, and he looked at the doctor and said, "F you! What do you know? You're just a doctor." He was a doctor. Yeah. So you know, he, he wasn't. You know, mentally he was pretty sharp, but his body was just wearing yeah. out. Yeah. Well, when you were talking, what came up in my mind was the idea of uh, control. We humans really like to think we have control over our lives, and the truth is, we really don't. You know, and so when a tragedy like John Denver. Um, or, you know, Kobe Bryant or um, the other person you were mentioning, which I, I'll admit I don't really know. Um, but is the question of, whoa, uh, wow, that was unexpected. What about, you know, all the, you know, the the ETA of when the plane or the helicopter was going to land and the thing that we were going to do next and the thing that we had planned for our, you know, time that was we were where we were headed. I mean, John Denver dying you know, I believe in a plane crash, his own plane, was he, he, he yeah. flying his own plane? He was flying a custom-made plane and it didn't go well. And the thing about it is, you know, for me, what I get curious, curiosity, you know, we, we talk about kids and they're curious. You know, I get curious about to die doing something you loved, it, you know, while you were, you know, it's like 
we don't expect that. He goes out to fly in in the plane because he loves doing it, and then his his life is over. Right. And so it takes us into this place of we don't ultimately have any control over our lives, and that's a scary place. I mean, I think that's the big lesson is really going, oh. <laughs> You know, we buy all this insurance for everything. And it's usually the, the one thing that we don't have insurance for that goes wrong. Or, you know, we we what if our lives, what if, well, if I do this, then this might happen. So then I better not do that because then this might happen. And then like uh, I have a client who who does that and and she she's a doctoral student and she's so worried that her research is going to not be valid. And she worries all the time about it. She went to Italy to be with her um family for Christmas and she got bit by a dog and she had to get rabies shots and it was horrible. And she said, I didn't even ever think about that. You know, when I was telling her, I was like, it's the things we don't ever think about. She said, but but now I am really thinking about that. You know, so now she's got the trauma about, well, what if I get bit by a dog? But what are the odds that we're going to be walk going on a run and we're going to get bit by a dog that doesn't happen that much. So we don't think about that. She'll think about it now because then we get into this, well, I better be careful that, you know, I'm not running when there's dogs or whatever. The truth is we can't control anything. We can only do one thing the do the best thing we can to step into our lives each day, each moment. And I mean, and live it because, you know, so, so here's the lesson I've learned from, you know, uh, from the Kobe Bryant's and, <laughs> even, and even my dad is that uh, you never know when, uh, you're going to see this person next. You never know what's really going to happen. And we assume we're going to go to bed and wake up. Millions of people go to bed and are not going to wake up. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, so I always tell my kids uh, that, you know, you really got to forgive as quickly as possible. And even if you're mad at people, you got to let them know how much you love them because, you yeah. know, we have all, we've all heard those stories of somebody who, you know, was upset with their spouse and then their spouse died. I mean, I think of all those people uh, at the Twin Towers, 9-11, who, who, you know that, again, because there's thousands of them, you know that some of them left the home in a huff and, you know, they didn't say the, the I love yous and they, they were just thinking, okay, this is just another day like any other day. And that was it. That was the last time anybody saw or heard from them again. And so, um, you know, I do not want to, uh, what do you call it, leave that as a, uh, I guess, my last words of being angry or, or, or something like that. I just, you know, it's important to, to uh, as you said, live in the moment and seize it and let, and just, man, this, this might be it. Well, and I think that's why death is our greatest teacher um, because of that, because we, we really appreciate what we have and the people in our lives. Um, I know, you know, I'm at the age now, me and my friends where we're watching um, our friends get, you know, cancer and go through heart disease and, um, and losing people. We're, you know, we're just, I don't want to say how old I am, but (laughs) I'm at the age where this, I remember when my mom used to say all her friends were dying and and I thought, wow, that must be hard. And and I find myself getting there. And so to come into this place of appreciation for every moment and really, you know, I don't think the thing about what you're saying is that's tricky, isn't it? For us to really forgive and, and make peace with all the people in our lives. 
Yes. Um, and there could be that something happens and there is something that was left unresolved. And then I think the work then is, is really forgiving ourselves because yeah. I mean, I wish we could all clean up our relationship issues and forgive and love. I think the world would be a much better place. Absolutely. <laughs> and- <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And, and uh, yeah, I, I am uh, I'm unfortunately uh, in the same place you are, you know, where, you know, you're you, you hit that, uh, you know, I have a couple of a couple of grandkids and, you know, it, it is as much fun as uh, and as much joy as my grandkids bring me, they're also a, that reminder yeah. that you're old enough to be, a, you know, you're, you're a two-time grandfather. You're, that's how old you are. And, <laughs> how did that happen? I don't understand. That's what's happening to me. <laughs> and it, it is shocking because, A, I'm still immature. <laughs> and, you know, and, and if I'm not looking in a mirror, I completely forget how old I am until all of a sudden, oh, hey, shock. <laughs> You know, cruel joke on me. I was just 17 just yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if we're talking about age, I think at our age, it is dying is more of a it's on our mind. But I also think now what's going on with the school shootings and, you know, kid my one of my kids come in the other day and say, oh, yeah, we had another shooter drill today at school. And, you know, it's really ridiculous because. You know, the shooters are usually kids in the school and they're going to know we're just giving them the map of where we're going to be. And so I started asking her questions about what that must be like for for kids today to, you know, go to school. They have four shooter drills a year where they have to go lock, get into a lockdown in a particular room. And like that's really going to, you know, I think my my client is right. She's, you know, the shooters are it's not going to really stop it from happening, but to go to school every day in fear that we could get shot, that, that this kind of tragedy could happen. I think that just brings us another layer. Talk about the archetypal grief. When we watch these terrorism attacks in these schools, especially the school shootings, I mean, shootings, these mass shootings anywhere are horrible. Um, we had the movie theater here in Colorado, you know, right. we had uh, Columbine and Parkview, you know, um, in my own backyard. And, um, you know, it makes us really question, you know, what could make somebody that angry that they they could kill large amounts of people? And then how does that make these kids feel that their lives are, you know, um, they're closer to death than I think I felt when I was a teen, you know, I, I didn't. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, when I was a teen, you know, the only thing I had to worry about was, uh, you know, asking a girl out or, or being rejected for asking a girl out. And and, and, and that was traumatic and as a, you know, enough, but to worry about, you know, worry about whether there may be a, a shooting at your school. That's, that, that's a heavy burden. And yeah. not only for the for not only for the student, I mean, it's definitely heavier on them, but also for the parents because mm-hmm. you got to ask yourself: This is my child. I'm sending them to school. Could you imagine if your student is going back to Columbine, you know, uh, or, or or something like you know? You got to ask yourself: Is this the last time I'm going to see my kids? Uh, you know, and, and it's that is a heavy, heavy thing. Uh, burden, whatever uh, uh, that 
you know, it's it's new. That is that has just happened in the last what decade or so where we started having these shootings. And of course, they're coming, they're becoming uh, more commonplace and more frequent. And and it's and and I and what I fear worse, uh, Doctor Patty, is that we're almost getting desensitized to it. Is that right? I mean, it's just like oh, there's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. And in this whole control thing. So then people are saying, well, you know, we'll give the teachers the guns, you know? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. Personally, if somebody gave me a gun, I'd, you know, I'd shoot myself. Cause I, you know, <laughs> I'm so, well, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't help, but we're trying to look for ways to control a situation and, and my work, which is why I love what I do. And I bring so much heart into what I do. Right. It's really about how do we bring more love and compassion into the world? And, and really let's try and understand what, what makes people so angry because anger is anger results from feeling out of control. So when we talk about anger with grief, we talk about the fact that I can't control the fact that this person's dying or that I'm dying or that, that, you know, so-and-so died and we get angry, we get mad. And so anger is a good emotion in some ways because it, it energizes us. and like mothers against drunk driving, you know, they got mad. And so they went out and they did something in the world to help uh, decrease the amount of drunk driving. Um, they didn't fix the problem obviously, but, but they work towards making it better. So anger can, can energize us. Um, but when we're that angry that we're going to go take out a whole school or a classroom of, of kiddos, there's something going on in the shooter that that's what we need to, to find the empathy for and really start earlier on with our kiddos with connection. You know, I think these, there's a disconnect, you know, these kids that have been bullied and, and um, shamed for, like, say, gender identity or um, choices that they make in their life. And they're angry because they don't feel like they fit in. And it's a chronic it's a chronic feeling of not belonging. And that's what I asked my client who was talking about the, the shooting um, drills. And, and I said, why do you think kids do this? And she said, they're, they're so hopeless. They feel like there's no hope for them. So why not? Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you, you know, I and that's a very interesting uh, idea because think about it. When you are that hopeless, mm-hmm. there's no reason for you to go on. A a child that is willing to go to their school and shoot up their their colleagues, their friends, is is analogous to let's say the suicide bomber who's going to run into a, mm-hmm. a supermarket just mm-hmm. because he's out of hope. And it's like, hey, uh, you know, this is my shot to make a difference to have an impact, it's going to be a negative, but, you know, think about, you know, these people have an impact that lasts for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know that, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, the the books that I've read, we as humans, we do want to have an impact. We want to make a difference. We want to know that I was on planet earth and somebody felt that I was there and and that I made a difference. Mm -hmm. And, And if you can't get it through a positive, you'll get it through a negative. Exactly. It's it's exactly. And the news, one of the news stations here specifically is now trying to not speak a lot about the shooter and the shooter's story to not um, give them all that, you know, 
airspace, basically, you know, because people are curious. What about it? What about it? What about it? Which I think is important to know. But I really I appreciate the news channel here that said we're not going to we're not going to talk a lot about that. We're going to talk about the the victims. We're going to talk about how we're going to help these people. We're not going to give this person that much publicity. Right. Right. So, I mean, that that basically encourages the the guy, the other individuals who are thinking about doing it. They know that they're going to get some publicity out of it. They're they're going to be famous. And, and, and again, that is a huge driver. We all, you know, uh, on some level, we all want to have some level of fame. And again, if you can't get it through a positive means then uh, you know, I'll get it through a negative mean. And, and, right. and uh, let me tell you, you become significant. You become important when you're holding a gun to somebody's face. Mm-hmm. I, I, right. And I think, you know, I have a background in early childhood education and I studied with an incredible woman who now has Alzheimer's and kind of, again, hard at our age to watch these things happening. But she was an incredible teacher of, you know, how children think and taught me a lot about, you know, I think the most important thing for me is that children can't distinguish fantasy from reality until they're seven or eight. And we learned that from Piaget, who studied cognitive development. But but we didn't learn that until the last you know century. I mean, this is all brand new information. But if so, we put a kiddo in front of a video game, in front of violent uh, movies, um, even, you know, the Batman, um, you know, that's rated, they rate it PG or they rate it R, but kids are going to watch it. And then, the, and when my kids were little, you know, um, they would have Batman uh, backpacks and pencils. And so kids are all curious and that's fine. I mean, I think there's an element of fantasy and an element of what kids learn. I love fairy tales and stories and fairy tales don't necessarily go well. There's always some sort of tragedy, which we learn from, but when it gets so graphic and we go into these, you know, shooting, 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 mass shootings, and that's imprinted in our brain before we're seven, that's, that's how it gets desensitized. I think. So then you have a kiddo, who now, you know, has just been playing this in their imagination and they're so hopeless and helpless and so sad that then they make it a reality. And that to me, that to me is, is what the real work is about is going back. We're so tapped in right now with kiddos with iPads and iPhones, you know, when they're one year old, I know, you know, you know, my grandbabies at two, you know, swiping the pictures on the yeah. on the iPhone. They, they know it and they want it. It's like we're so addicted to to that. And if we keep in mind that kids don't know fantasy from reality until seven or eight, we might be a little bit more careful with building more important connections, which is face to face human connection as opposed to the screen, which looks all real. Right. And, well, and, and the screen also affects, uh, you know, uh, you know, research has shown that, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. it affects our brain, right? It's the same chemistry as, as, uh, as, you know, endorphins or whatever. It releases some of the stuff that makes us feel good, you know, and Hey, I got a like and you know, whatever and stuff like that. And so, uh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, somebody mentioned to me, you know, that we were talking about, uh, again, screen time with these youngsters and how people just, you know, uh, constantly put the screen in front of their kids. And somebody mentioned, somebody said to me, you know, Bert, back in the day, you guys didn't have that. 
uh, you guys just had a TV. It's the same thing. And I said, it is to an extent. However, you know, when I plunk down my kids in front of the TV, I was one who chose the media they were watching. Mm-hmm. And so they were watching Barney or they were watching a Disney channel uh, or Disney product or something, as opposed to you hand a, a screen to a young kid and he might be watching what you wanted him to watch, or he might accidentally swipe and all of a sudden he's watching something that is unacceptable uh, for a youngster to watch or probably unacceptable for anybody to watch. Uh, you know, uh, there is a, I met with a, uh, a, a, a charity organization the other day, and they said that 22% of all porn is watched by 10 and under now. Oh, my God. And, and that's because they have so much access to it. And, you know, and, and, and you know, and you might be looking at, you know, your child might be looking at, uh, you know, I don't know, a bathing suit. And all of a sudden they're they're transported into this other place. And and so there is you really have to monitor and you got to really put uh, what do you call it? Parent controls on these screens because they are a very, very slippery slope. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, you know, we don't, uh, it, it's hard. I'm glad I always say to parents today, I'm glad I didn't have to, I know. to worry about that when you guys were little, but um, it's hard. It's tough. It's really tough. And I think really it goes back to human connection and, you know, it's, I would say it's, it's brand new hot off the press. Now this whole need for human relationship and um, social emotional awareness. And, you know, we try and do it, um, but we really haven't done it well on the planet. If you look back and some of the old school beliefs, stop crying before I give you something to cry about. You should be ashamed of yourself. Don't be angry. You know, and we're still doing this in our DNA. So they're finding that we're really carrying our ancestral trauma for 14 generations. So, even parents I know, because I've taught parent education for years, they they read the more books they read, the worse they feel. And so that's my work. My first book was the shot living in the shadow of the two good mother archetype about why women don't feel good enough, no matter how much they do, you know, and then I think it's such a deeper conversation than we're all having, Bert. So that's why I appreciate you giving me the time to to talk about this stuff, because I feel like. This this is the part that we kind of want to skim over. We want to we want to just figure it out and get to the to the solution, but deeper inside our human essence is this emotional longing for connection. You know, Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, who I do my third book that's coming out is on shame informed therapy. So I've been studying the neurobiology of shame, and it's really about feeling connected. And if and early infancy and attachment theory and all that stuff. We're still not doing it really well. I have to say, because we're, we're trying to do it in our head instead of the embodiment of, of what it means to really be in connection with another human being. That means I have to feel something. And, and if I've had experiences of, of disconnect, when I try and connect with somebody else, that's going to get triggered. And I'd rather just give me the bullet points and tell me how to do it. 
Um, and that's hard. It's it's it so hard. hard to have these deeper conversations. It, it, it is hard. And you know what I what I've noticed too. And and I don't know uh, if uh, if ladies do this, but I know that. Uh, so I uh, I'm involved with a couple of men's group, and, and so when we get together to discuss some of these important emotional issues, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as as this as the discussion builds sooner or later several several guys will start wisecracking mm-hmm. because you know they're 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 trying to deal with their emotions and this is like man this is too much and this is you know this is hard and this is getting close and i better make a joke because if i don't make a joke i'm going to start bawling or something yeah. you know as guys we're supposed to be strong and and fearless and and and, and mm-hmm. You know, you're, we're not supposed to cry and all this other crap that is, that is you know, uh, given to us at an early age. But as we get older, we are somewhat stunted. And, and, and I see this with our, you know, with men that when it gets too real, I got to I got to make a joke because yeah. I can't take it anymore. Yeah, we use sarcasm a lot. Um, I know I that <laughs> I grew up with a lot of sarcasm in my family. We didn't really talk about things. We just made jokes. And so I catch myself sometimes when I'm in that um, place. And so it is something that we do. It's a defense against cut, connecting to those emotional pieces. So I love that you're in a men's group. I love hearing about men's groups. You know, I've been in women's groups my whole life. And I've been saying to the women for years, we can't change anything until we get the men here. You know, we really need men to have these conversations because I don't think it's a gender thing. I think it's, it's our inner experience of what's masculine and feminine energy. And, you know, we look at all the gender identity things now, you know, there's like 58 different types of gender identities. And I think people are trying to find, I know I had a client tell me that as well. She was talking to, I explained this to me. She said, there's 58. I looked them up. So it's not about gender. It's about holding and Carl Jung would say the anima and the animus and the inner marriage of both aspects of our inner masculine and feminine, the masculine. One easy way to describe it is the the masculine is the river bank and the feminine is the river and you have to have both. So I think as we begin to heal this sense of, of power and control, that's been the dominator, you know, back to power and force you know, we start to heal and really look at what's really more of the um, inner experience of power, which is unconditional love and and feeling all of our feelings. And so we've been talked out of feeling for years. Don't don't be angry. Don't be sad. Don't be this. Don't be that. We feel like we're shame. It's shame. It's like I shouldn't feel this. And now I grow up and I don't even know what I feel anymore because I was talked out of that feeling when I was a kid and I was told it was bad and I can't even really access what it is. So right. that's my work of our authenticity architects. It's that's what why I called it that. It's like let's get to these feelings that are deep inside that may not feel good so that can bring us back to life. And that's why grief back to grief deepens us because it it touches on um, so many deep emotions and it makes us realize we're fragile and this life is, it, it, it could, it could be over any minute. And how do I pay attention to living as fully as I can in the moment? Yeah. And we're going to end on that note. I, I love it. I've, I had such a, a fun time talking about this very important 
topic or topics. Uh, we went uh, really deep. And so, Patty, I want to say thank you so much for stopping by. And if you guys want to find out more about Patty, you can go to pattyashley.com. Dr. Patty Ashley, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you, Bert. And it's Patty with an I, by the way. Patty with an I. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you pointed that out. And thanks so much. I told you I like to talk, so I appreciate you giving me a chance to, you know, share all those insights. And Absolutely. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.